Job chapter 1 is where we turn this morning. Job chapter 1. Job is a book right before the Psalms in the, in the Scriptures, so it's easy to find, and, and we will get into that here in just a moment. Job is a long book, and you think, good grief, how, how long is it going to take us? You have a blessed hope, perhaps, of uh, Christ coming before we finish. I don't know, but we will try not to be as tedious, perhaps, looking through it. At least in these first two chapters, we need to, be, we need to take our time sauntering through this, because it does really set the stage for what happens in the middle of the whole book, which is the middle from chapter 3 to chapter uh, 40, even chapter 42, the last little bit there is how it all how it all ends. But in the course of it, we will see so many, so many things. And I have to avoid the temptation to, to assume that we all know what this whole book is about, or even the intricacies of it. I mean, I'm learning more intricacies of it. It's just a profound, uh, profound book. I want to unfold it as it unfolds. We'll anticipate some things uh, you know, expecting that we all know Job suffers. We all he had a hard, he had a hard situation. That, but then God uh, delivered him. Well, yes, that is part of the story. But w- what's going on under the under the surface? Well, thankfully, we have a view of that in these first two chapters. But before that, even we have a view of this man Job. Who is this guy, and what is he about? Really, what is going on with Job one through five, which I'll read here in a moment, is what is very similar to the opening of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You, remember, you know the first line of, of the thing? Marley was dead. Excuse me? Charles Dickens, what are you thinking? Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon the exchange for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Now, he goes on and discusses the doornail issue and why that is even a, a figure of speech and so forth. But he goes on, he says, There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. Marley was dead. And you see how that then unfolds in the rest of the book. You all have this book, this great book. It celebrates Jesus. In the, in the Christmas uh, situation, Christmas narrative. But we see Job 1 through, or excuse me, 1, 1 through 5, as that very similar statement. Marley was dead to begin with. Job was a certain man. We'll see this. In fact, let's look at this. Job 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, we say, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters are born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the sons of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and set them apart as holy. And he'd rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have cursed, have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. What we see here is a rather detailed and yet not so detailed view of who is this man, Job. It really, as I mentioned, sets the stage for what we, what we see in the rest of this chapter 1 and then, of course, through the rest of the book, that his 
his innocence, his righteousness, his scrupulousness, his attention to detail, his attention and and caution against cursing God is so much uh, mentioned in these few verses as we will look at going forward here. Job was as faultless as a man can be. Really helps to follow after what we've been discussing as a church even the last several weeks, the characteristics or qualifications of elders and deacons. Those things that we see, must see, in relation to pastors, boy, Job was this kind of a fella. He was, he was above reproach. In fact, that's the, the first word we'll see here, describing his character and so forth. But he was as faultless as a man can be. He is one who is uh, able to claim and demonstrate a right relationship with God. But first of all, it says there was a man. Now, lest that kind of echo in your mind as once upon a time, you know, how some uh, fables and, and, and the um, children's stories start. It, it may have that flair to you, that favor uh, or feel to you that, oh, this is a parable, this is a fictionalized story that helps us communicate some truth. Well, some people would regard that. I regard this as a, a real live human being, somebody who was Extant, you know, he lived at that time about 4,000 years ago, time of the patriarchs, most likely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in that time. Uh, Why is that? Because of the way that his wealth is described, the way that his possessions are numbered. It's not in relation to gold or cryptocurrency or anything like that. It's related to livestock. Got so much of this, so much of that. Got all the kids. And just, you know, that is the Old Testament, even more specifically, the patriarchal method or manner of, of evaluating wealth. It says there was this man in a land of us. And you know how you read in, well, maybe you know, I don't know. If you ever read in the, in the Hebrew Bible or look at how these, these names are spelled, we call it us. In Hebrew, you ought to say uts. You think, let's, go, let's stick with us. But you get the idea that this is, is a place that is uh, spoken of a few other times in Scripture, and not to belabor the point, it, can either, it, it speaks of a place east of the Jordan River. When we read about the sons of the east, Job is the greatest of all the sons of the east. It has to do from the perspective of Israel, right there, Israel, on the eastern side. So on the other side, on this side of the Jordan Rift Valley, that's east. And uh, the northeast part in Aram or Syria, Uz, Uts is, is referred to up there. Or maybe some place a little bit farther south, like Edom or Moab, Edom, or even down farther south, Midian. We can see a relation to that all through. But this, this man, in other words, is not an Israelite. But even that is somewhat, the word is non sequitur. It just doesn't fall, anachronistic, that's another term. It's out of time. Why do we say that? Because this is the patriarchal time period, most likely. Israelites come in after the Exodus, right? Descendants of Israel, who's also called Jacob. Jacob leads all, well, Jacob, of course, dies, but his kids come out of Egypt in the Exodus and form this nation Israel. That's 600 years after Abraham, 400 years after, after Jacob died. And so calling them Israelites or, you know, Job wasn't an Israelite, that's not quite adequate. Uh, it's like calling Thomas Jefferson a Tea Party Republican or something. No, it's, it's out of order. It's, it's different. So, but he is not somebody who is, well, is he Jewish? Is he a descendant of, of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is he a descendant of Shem? possibly. Uh, We just don't know about it. In fact, that's an interesting thing in this verse. We have his name. His name was Job. Does it list a genealogy? You know, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. It does that for his friends that will come, you know, Eliphaz and the other guys, son of so-and-so. 
but doesn't for Job. It says there was a man. He lived over east of the Jordan River. His name was Job. Again, going back into the Hebrew, his name in Hebrew would be spoken of as Eov. Eov. We're going to call him Job just because we do, but it's interesting how, how names especially uh, get anglicized or however you, however you want to say. But he lived in this area. He was, he was called Job. That was his name. Probably lived in the time of the patriarchs, so 2000 BC. He was one who was excellent in so many different ways. He is described here as, well, in four different terms here, and then of course it goes on and describes what was added to him. But here at the end of verse 1, it says, that man, not somebody else, we're talking about this guy, Job, this guy, I mean, pay attention to him, direct your attention to him, which is what we'll see God doing to Satan when Satan comes, says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? This is the introduction to us. Hey, let's look at this guy. What is he about? You know, this guy who really lived. He is listed in Ezekiel uh, as well and in James, indicating this is a real person. Ezekiel uh, describes him twice in relation to Daniel and Noah, righteous men. And if they were extant, you know, alive in the day of the, of the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, even their own righteousness would only deliver themselves. It couldn't affect or apply to any other person. It would only, they would only deliver themselves. Job is described as a righteous person, as we see here in this verse. That man was blameless. He was blameless and upright. These two terms have to do with a, a moral characteristic or moral qualities, kind of like we saw in relation to the elders, pastors, overseers in our study in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and First Peter 5 and, and elsewhere. And he is blameless, this idea of being above reproach, not perfect or, or sinless, you know, without sin. He'll acknowledge his sin going forward, but he'll also dis- describe and, and defend his innocence before God. But he's, he, this is what the scripture says. He is blameless. He is a genuine, a sincere fellow. He is filled with integrity. Integrity is going to be a key word as we go forward looking at this, uh, this account. We see that he is complete in his character. There's not something that, that kind of, well, don't look at this over here. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain kind of thing. Uh, he is one who is full of uh, innocence, respectability, a spotless character. Again, not perfect. Who, you know, what man is perfect before God? What man can decide? I have no sin. That man's a liar. If there's nothing else wrong with him, he's a liar. Well, that indicates there's more than, than just the lying going on with him. And yet he is described here as this righteous person. He is one who is, is very much evident in his, in his conduct to be blameless. You know, it's a difficult thing. And even in relation to pastors, elders, overseers, First, First Timothy 5 talks about this difficulty sometimes to know who, who is this guy really? And what is he about? First Timothy 5, 24 and 25 mentions the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, the sins follow after so also good works are quite evident, and those who are, which are otherwise cannot be concealed. In other words, he's saying it, it, sometimes it's hard to know what's going on with that, with that person. Uh, sins or good works, it, it, they're not always you know, on display. But give enough time, you're going to see, oh, yeah, this, this person is full of sin. We, he was just hiding it very well. Or, you know, we didn't know how, what, a, what a respectable person this was because he doesn't show it all the time. He's not an outlandish, you know, in-your-face kind of person. Uh, the good works are quite evident, some which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So this idea of Job's character is quite evident. And he is, as it mentions here in verse 3, I think, uh, the greatest of the sons of the, of the East. Everybody knew about Job for a variety of reasons, as we'll see here. It says that he is upright. He is one who is 
uh, one well, he is uh, one who is straight, he is not crooked, not bent, he is one who is honest, he's right in his dealings with other people. Comes from his character, being a man of integrity, man of, of uh, purity even, innocence, respectability. But how he relates to other people is with fairness, justice, righteousness. He is not a treacherous person, he is not one who is devious in his ways, or, or somebody who is uh, you know, either out in front of people's faces or behind the scenes scoffing at people, you know, uh, cutting them down or or uh, just destroying other people with, with his words. He is not one who is perverse or double-crossing. He is uh, pure. He is proper. Whatever he says is proper and right and, and good. And he deals in a level playing field or a level way with other people. He's not partial to anybody. He's just kindness that he shows to anybody. We'll see that as he goes on and defends his character going forward. These two words, blameless and upright, are repeated many times in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, especially more specifically in Job, these two ideas are, are spoken of together. For example, Psalm 25 and verse 21 says, Let integrity, or blamelessness, and uprightness guard me, for I hope in you. We see these two terms very much together. Other places as well, where this righteousness, this righteous behavior and conduct is very much on display. Proverbs 2 and verse 7, for example, another, another case. God stores up sound wisdom for the upright. There's our word upright. A shield to those who walk in integrity. There's our word blameless. To guard the paths of justice and he keeps the way of his holy ones. Being upright, being a, a man, woman of integrity is what we're called to. And Job is just like this. He is a complete in these regards. This man, Job. It says, well, it said in relation to human uh, relationships and, and commerce and family dealings and so forth, he was blameless and upright. But here it shifts the focus now. What is he in relation to God? And it says he is fearing God and turning away from evil. Fearing God or a God-fearing man. He is one who is so much given to the knowledge of God. And you think, well, how much did he know about God in, in that day and age, right? Well, he knew enough that God is holy and righteous and he must be feared. He's not one of us. We haven't, we haven't made him in our own image. We haven't made him to fit or suit our own needs or desires, or there's, there's no way in which he is beholden to us, that you know, who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him by God. No, there is a fear of God. And we think of fashion, right? That's Old Testament, fearing God. Well, yes, but it's also New Testament time period, well, fearing God. We think, oh, does that mean we, we should you know, shrink from him? Well, if, if that's suitable, yes. But in other regards, no. Remember in Exodus 20 and verse 20, I've mentioned this on various occasions, and I mentioned it in relation to that, that maybe modern expression of having 20-20 vision, Exodus 20-20. says, Moses said to the people, this is at Mount Sinai, the horrible, terrible sight that is before them, and of course the Ten Commandments that God has just given. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Oh, so don't be afraid. Because they were trembling, they said, God's going to kill us. Don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. There is a difference, Moses is saying here, in relation to uh, a timidness, a shrinking away, a shrinking back in, in uh, shame and, and uh, despair versus a living fear, an abiding fear that ought to remain with believers that he says, so that you may not sin. This fear is, is not just a nervous terror. It's not just something that we, we shrink back from. It has the idea of honor, has the idea of respect, has the idea of esteem. Now, 
I don't view these as mutually exclusive, right? When in Revelation chapter 1, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned upon Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, when he turned and heard, saw rather, this voice that was speaking to him, and it was Jesus in John 1, what did he do? Cuddled right up with him. Oh, I missed you. He fell at his feet as a dead man. So even John, who knew this Jesus, who had that intimate relationship, he still had that terror because of who Christ is. We've somehow neglected that view of God in our, in our day and age. He's become a familiar God, which is not wrong, but always holding him in high esteem. He is the God. He is the God of gods. He is the one who, to whom we must give an account. He is the one who is the last um, view of what is good and righteous that people will see before they're cast in the lake of fire will stand before God and give an account of their lives. The books are open. The other book, oh no, Job had that expectation, that fear of God, that realizing there is a God, I'm not him, there is a God, he's spoken, there is a God, I'm going to stand before him in judgment. There is that, that terror that he has, and yet it, it settles down into a very high, awesome, we use that so flippantly sometimes, awesome, but is it worthy of awe, reverence? Are you willing? Is it worthy enough for you to bow down and worship that thing? We say, oh, that was an awesome sunset. Well, yeah, God did that. And we, and, okay, I can regard I mean, who can do that? Any, any of us can make a sunset like God does every day across the earth. I mean, constantly making a sunset around the earth. Can you imagine the, the power, the creativity that he has with that? And yet much, much more revering God. Having that view of God then leads us into certain responses to him. It says one here, turning away from evil. In other regards, we can say fearing God means that we listen to his voice. We heed what he has to say. We value what he has to say. Not just you know flipping through, uh, kind of like we're looking through the classified ads or something and saying, huh, uh, oh yeah, I, I know that. And, and just, you're flipping through the scriptures and you're looking for something that can uh, trip your bobber, as my father would say. Uh, just something that makes you excited. No, this is God's word. This is something that it gives life, right? It gives, it gives uh, the way of life for all people to listen to God, to then obey his word, to say, this is what God said, and I'm going to obey it. I'm going to relish in God's word because what he says is good. It's good for me, and I want to obey it. I don't always obey it, but I want to obey it. I do it out of a sense of duty, yes, because what is only right before before a creator God and creation or creatures is to do what the creator says. You wouldn't expect, and we hear this all the time, about uh, things that are supposed to do a particular protocol or particular thing, and they don't do that, whether it's a, uh, I mentioned dishwashers last time, how about uh, self-driving cars? They don't do the things that they're supposed to do, and people die as a result. Well, that's a fault. The creation... The creature ought to do what the creator says. To do anything otherwise is treachery. It is disobedience. It is rebellion against God. And so Job's fear of the Lord leads him to obedience out of duty, yes, but more specifically out of love, out of devotion, because of what God has done for us, because of who he is for the first thing, but what he has done for us. You know that example in the the Mosaic Law regarding slavery and if a slave were to come to be free for whatever, for whatever cause, and yet says, I don't want that freedom. I want to be your slave for life to this master who's, who's releasing him. 
You know the situation that I'm talking about. This guy take the slave and put his ear against a, a door and put an all through it. Mark himself as a lifelong slave, not out of out of duty, but out of devotion, out of love, out of appreciation for what this master is. I want to serve you all my days. And so Job is this guy, fearing God, devoting himself to God, clinging to God, like as if, I don't know, there's life in God, and there's truth in God, and there is reason for being in God. And so he says, to whom else should I go? Like when Jesus said, are you going to, disciples going to leave me too? And Peter said, to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. When we realize that, it really clarifies so much of the distractions in our world, the voices that are rising up, even the voices we'll see in Job that sound like they're, they're speaking, huh, at least they're, they're talking about things that, hmm, I've got to think about that. Well, they're wrong in a lot of respects, correct in some regards, wrong in other respects. But coming right to Christ, coming to his word, there's no need to, to evaluate, hmm, I don't know if you know, the fear of the Lord gives wisdom. Let me test that and see. Test it, fine, but don't doubt it. Fear God, you'll get wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Job had that fear of the Lord. He is described here in so many words as a wise person. He has this, this great, uh, uh, again, a fear of God that leads to obedience, love, devotion, that then results in wisdom and wise conduct. He, is, he recognizes there's a God, I'm not him. God is altogether different to him. He is greater than him. He deserves all respect and obedience. It says here, he turns away from evil, constantly turning away from evil. He knows that not just evil is out there, and we know that. I mean, good grief. We live in this world, and Job was the same. It's not like we're going to be delivered from this evil age. We're, we're part of it. We are in this world, but not of it, as, as the scripture would say. But even, even that evil that is outside is not anything compared to the evil that is inside our own hearts which we think, well, doesn't Job demand his innocence all throughout it? Well, yes, but he also acknowledges, ah, he needs a mediator. He needs somebody to to stand before him, between him and God. And so he turns away from evil. He doesn't turn to it. He turns away from it. Forget that. I want to please God. Fearing God and turning away from evil are, again, two ideas that are brought very close together, just as blameless and, and upright are brought together Fearing God and departing from evil as many times. For example, Psalm 33 and verse 14 says, Depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So we depart from evil, we are doing good, we are turning away from these evil things, turning back to the living God. That one didn't mention the, the, uh, the fearing the Lord part, but there are, there are some other ones I'll mention here in just a moment. That he is uh, speaking of this in relation to, hey, you fear God? Well, don't go into things God doesn't like. Huh. Well, that makes sense. You know, if you're if you're married to a, a spouse and the spouse doesn't like, and you go and do whatever it is, do you think that maybe there's going to be some consequences? Maybe there's going to be some disappointment, frustration. So maybe you should do what your spouse likes. Whoa, well, go ahead and try that at home, and see how that works. Uh, but fearing God and turning away from evil shows us that we are honoring honoring God. I mentioned that fearing God is not just an Old Testament concept. Turning away from evil certainly is not an Old Testament concept. It's all, scripture, all through Scripture. But we see this. One of my favorite, I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, it's my favorite, but one of the most favorite is in John 9 when Jesus heals that man who was blind from birth, right? And 
just very fantastic story, wonderful <coughs> story, narrative, account, history. You get my drift. John 9 and verse 31 says, we know, this is the man speaking, the, who was just healed, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Anyone who's God-fearing, he's describing Jesus, of course. Well, wait a minute, well, Jesus was God-fearing? Yeah, because he, was, he knew who God was. He came from the Father. He says, I'm, the whole reason I'm here is to take away sin. Why do I have to take away sin? Why doesn't God just forgive? Because God is holy, because God is righteous, because he's a God of justice. He's not just, uh, uh, can't just do anything he wants. He is bound by his own character. You think he can't do everything he wants? No, he can't lie. That's one thing, and there are other things as well. But God is a God who is to be feared, even by the Lord Jesus in his obedience, his devotion, uh, entrusting himself to God the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. How about in Acts 10, another example of God-fearing this man, Cornelius, Roman centurion, I mean, a, a brutish kind of fellow, I mean, brute in the, in the physical sense, maybe not in the moral sense or intellectual sense, but one who is, I mean, he's a man's man, right? A Roman centurion, no less. But as describes here in Acts 10 and, and later, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all fearing God, and that's, that's held up as a, a great virtue for him. He, he was one who feared God. Uh, later it says, he was a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. And so he is, he is granted that request to hear the gospel. Peter himself goes and preaches the gospel to Cornelius and all of his household, and they're all saved. It's a tremendous testimony. Anyhow, this man, Job, is blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Evil, recognizing evil, leads him away from God and he wants to be in right relationship to him. This idea of evil has to do of things that are just badly made, worthless, just not worthy of our attention, not worth, worth our you know, orientation, orienting our lives around these things. They are uh, even, even not, they are worthless in that regard, but they also can be contemptible. Uh, for example, hey, everybody, let's go down to the sewer and just see what we can find. No, what are you thinking? That's evil. That is not just worthless. That is despicable. That is contemptible. That's, that's no, we're not going to do that. And yet, isn't that what sin is? If we just had a view that that's what sin is, that it is disgusting, whether it's the words that we speak or the, 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 the kind of... Uh, laughter that we want when we tell this joke we'll get laughter for sure or or man if i just you know buy this or don't buy this or maybe i just steal this or all the wickedness that we can contrive that's evil in god's sight that is despicable that is why jesus came to die for sin and we go willingly into it deliberately into these sins no job didn't he turned away from he shunned that stuff he didn't want that anywhere near himself or his family as we'll see uh, very quickly in these last several verses it says, and it doesn't have it in this translation, but, but it ha- there's a little word that is in the Hebrew that says, and, and, seven sons and three daughters are born to him. Now the question is, could that and, and that word and, that little one-letter deal, can have a rather elastic idea or implication? Is it, will this happen and that happened, or, or could it be, he was all this, blameless, upright, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Therefore, because of his piety, his devotion, God blessed him. God blessed him, in other words, because of, based on the substance of his character. I don't, I'm not going to go there. I don't think that's what is, is, some people would, one person said, 
it is subtly suggested that his great wealth, his great family experience, was based on his, his character and so forth. There, there is a distinction, but we'll see throughout this book that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Wait a minute, not done yet. Good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. Did I say all the different iterations? The point is, how are you going to know what's going to happen? There's not a cause and effect that we can't ever make God in our uh, beholden to us. We read it, it was last week, 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant down from Shiloh down to the battle at um, uh, Aphek, that, hey, if we bring God down, he'll have to give us victory, right? 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 Those Philistines are really mean and nasty. They brought the Ark down thinking they had God in their power, in their control, and God said, no, that's not how, we, how this works around here. I'm not beholden to you. You are going to be killed. Wait a minute, God, we're your people. You are blaspheming me. You think that I owe you. I owe you nothing. And so we read about it. And it's just tremendous, almost a comical scene, what we read in, in 1 Samuel 6. The, the Ark of the Covenant brought into the temple of Dagon, the god, and the Dagon fish you know, falls over and hands fall. I mean, just, and then we don't want this thing. Take it away. Take Ekron and Gath and all these cities because you're treating God as if he were just a person to be manipulated, somebody who is, is indebted to you and therefore you do whatever he wants. No, no. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Job does what he does because of who God is, not because of what he can get from God. It's not one of these prosperity gospel things. Well, if you do this, X, Y, and Z, follow the protocol, you'll get. I mean, just name it and claim it, right? God will bless you, bless your socks off with his stuff. And that's the accusation get ahead of myself, but that's the accusation that Satan brings. Job is only godly because of all the stuff you give him. Take it away, he will curse you to his face, to your, to your face. Well, that's Satan's accusation. So to say that, that Job is only righteous because of what he has uh, is, is wrong, but even to say Job has what he has because he's righteous, well, that's not entirely accurate either. Because there are wealthy, righteous people, there are impoverished, wealth, uh, impoverished righteous people, and, and vice versa. And so sometimes we can't make heads or tails of it. If you want a longer diatribe on that, read Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters of wonderful theology. But shows, you know, it shows, one, the vanity of things, but also shows fear God and do what? Keep his commandments. Do what he says. Do what he says, regardless of the outcome. If you do what God says, you are on his side. You will receive not just temporal blessings, whatever they might be, and they'll be different for each one, different expressions, different degrees, and so forth, but everyone is guaranteed eternal life, which is like, well, that's good. That's a benefit. You, and it's something we can experience now, John 17, 3, this is life, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, the only true and living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. We can have in that right now. But it is something that will be realized fully in that future time. So Job has this idea. Regardless of what God gives me, I'm going to fear him. I'm going to worship him. It says seven, dons, seven sons and three daughters are born to him. Seven and three and ten. These ideas are repeated here in this context quite often. Hey, seven plus three is ten. Shows the completion. Shows this, this perfection idea. I've got seven sons, which is like great. And then three daughters, which is like great. And then 
they're, they're born into this household. And it's just a tremendous blessing. And how did Job get them? They're gifts from God. Children are an inheritance, a gift of God given to those who love him, who, who please him, who are desirous of his life, God's life in, in their lives. Verse 3 says his possessions or his stuff, not just his goods like, you know, counting candlesticks and, and uh, how many different changes of clothes he has. But no, he's talking about the, the, the livestock, really, the livestock here and the servants to care for that livestock. He says 7,000 sheep. Notice the word, the, that numeral seven, or that number seven, the idea of it. And 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of, of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very, I mean, you can't even count them. How many servants he has? Good grief. How, oh, you work for me too? Glad to meet you. And just that kind of a relationship. His possessions were like a lot. And you think, I don't know how much, how, what I would do with 7,000 sheep. Uh, or 3,000 camels. The idea, though, is, get this, sheep were used for food and clothing, both the, the wool from the sheep, but also the skins. The sheep skins could also be used as, as uh, writing material. You, you treat it and all that. You, so you have these sheep, just so many of them. With this word also can include not just sheep, but goats. It's a kind of that, that two-for-one uh, term to, to refer to them. And so... Job had plentiful stuff, food, no question, no problem there, uh, clothing for himself, even to be used, you know, the leather can be used to make uh, um, dwellings and all this kind of thing. I was going to say something, we'll save that, save that for later. He has sufficient wealth for himself and to trade with other people. Well, how is he going to trade? He has camels. This is like owning your own delivery company. You know, I have this uh, panel truck, I can deliver, and I got a whole fleet of them, and the drivers to boot can do it. He's got the camels to transport stuff. He's like a caravan uh, master. He, he can, he can he's U-Haul, Penske, all those things that can, can take care of it. Transporting goods and people. Just tremendous wealth that he has and the center of commerce right there. Hey, Job, I've got to carry this over to Taman. You want to, you got me a camel or two? Yeah, I got you hooked up. Uh, and it's just, he, he's known. Everybody has his number. As a, you know, that's kind of anachronistic too. But he has 500 pairs of oxen. What are oxen good for? agricultural stuff, and pulling, uh, uh, plowing, whatever, whatever the thing is, carrying loads. These are pairs that are, that are working together. And so they're, they're trained, they're, they're very much uh, useful in the work of, of agricultural um, tillage and so forth. This indicates, by the way, that Job has some land. He's, he's a, a landed gentry person, right, in the, in the old vernacular. He has these, these uh, donkeys to work as well, these 500 female donkeys. Now, I'm sure he has other male donkeys, you know, a few of those, but 500 useful for breeding, for milk, for carrying burdens, for plowing. I'm just looking at how the, the donkeys are used in the scripture. Threshing, riding, was riding on a donkey. And so we, we see, wow, these are useful vehicles. I was going to say, no, they're all vehicles, animals, and useful in so many different ways. He had very many servants, just a whole lot. You can't even count them, just beyond number, serving in his household. And can you imagine, think if you've read Ruth re- recently, you remember how the, the servants of Boaz related to him? It wasn't a, oh, here comes the master, you better look like, you know, act like you're working. No, they were just delightful, gladly working and, and saying, hey, Mr. Boaz, God bless, Yahweh bless you, they would even say. And he re- returns, in, in other words, this is a joyous, harmonious, wonderful household, big household, just tremendous wealth and esteem that he has. It says that man, this man Job, was the greatest, the greatest. I know Muhammad Ali said it, but he's the greatest of all the sons of the East. He is, 
I mean, he is bar none. Everybody knows Job. Everybody has a high opinion of him because he's blameless, upright, free, and Lord, turning away from evil. If you do business with Job, you will not be disappointed. I mean, that's the, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be nice to have that said about you? People think of, of your name and they think, oh, yeah, you know, whatever you, what do you want them to think of? Well, you better be doing that now. Are you, are you trustworthy? Are you faithful? Are you impartial? All these things. He was the greatest of all the sons of the East. So all these people who lived on the other side of the Jordan Rift. And you think, okay, we don't know much about this guy Job in terms of his family heritage. We know he's, his character is great. We know he's a large family. He's very wealthy. We know he lives probably, doesn't really, well, it says he lives in Uts, right? Or Uz. And it's not in Israel. What this shows is that God is very kind to those who fear him. Whether you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other guys, you know, the 12 tribes, or not, whether you're a Gentile, like probably the most of us, if you fear the Lord, turn away from evil, pursue blamelessness and uprightness before God, God will respond to you. God will draw near to you. God will give you himself uh, in, in very much kindness. Well, verses 4 and 5 are, are, are quick uh, illustration or just an anecdote, a, a cameo appearance of, of, okay, who is this guy? And, and the implications of what goes on in these verses will filter through or affect or be seen in uh, repetition through the rest of the book. Verse 4 says his sons used to go. I'm, I'm, I'll be quick about this. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. What is he talking about? A birthday, perhaps? Whether he's talking about uh, probably not a festival day because when did the festivals come in? You know, Passover and, and Sukkot and all those things. Later. We're talking year, hundreds of years later that these things, what, was it, what were they celebrating? Maybe their birthdays? You think, well, birthday celebration, yes. Job chapter 3, Job curses the day of his birth. And he, he describes it in this, in this kind of language. So perhaps that these people are celebrating, these, these sons of Job are celebrating, hey, it's my birthday today, this month, come on over to my house, we'll have a feast. And so they did it seven times, there we go, seven times during the course of the year. Some people suggest maybe, maybe each son had a day of the week, right? There's seven, excuse me, seven sons, seven days of the week. Maybe each son had a, had a day and maybe they had a festival. Probably not that because it says that, verse five says, when it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle. Well, they would never be completed. They'd just be partying all the time if it was every day of the week, right? And it's not that picture. These, these, these men and women, they like to get together. It's not like, hey, I'm having a party, but you guys can't come. I invite all my brothers and the sisters too. They're not, you know, they're welcome. Does it indicate that they're married? It doesn't. It suggests, perhaps, if these sisters were invited, that they still live with Job and Mrs. Job, but we, we just don't know. We do know, in this regard, that, did you notice that seven sons and three daughters, that was the first thing mentioned besides the character of Job? It's the first things mentioned, because that's very important to Job, his family life. And we'll see that that, I don't know there was an idol in his life, but it was something that God tested Job severely in. These are men and women who love each other, love being with each other, and they would, they would party together. They would uh, eat and drink together. And each one, they just enjoyed it. And it was, it was something that lasted for days, however, however long it happened. But Job's concern in all this, his joy, of course, was for his kids to be together, but his concern was that, hmm, maybe something happened in that party 
in, in the course of conversation, in the course of being merry with wine and a full belly, maybe, maybe things got out of hand. Maybe, possibly, perhaps they have cursed God in their hearts. And so Job was very careful. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, and the question is, was Job invited? Maybe, maybe not. The point is, the, the sons and the daughters were, were together. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send, he would, he would invite them just as the brothers sent and invited the sisters, the, the daughters to come. Job would send, so it seems like he's bringing everybody together, come back to daddy's, we're going to have a meeting, we're going to have some uh, a discussion here. But even more than that, I want to make sure you guys are right before God. I want to set you apart as holy. I want to make sure that you are sanctified. I want you to be sure that your relationship with God, and we'll see the name of God, Yahweh, used throughout the scripture, but a lot of throughout Job, but more specifically, or more generally rather, it is the word God. um, Elohim, you've heard that term uh, or a derivation of that is, is primarily how it's used, but it's also referred to as Yahweh. We'll get into the implication of that as well later. But Job would come and bring them together, and the verse 5 says he would rise up early. Wasn't it something he put off to the, later in the day? I'll get around to it right first thing. First thing in the morning, we're going to do this thing. And so he'd rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Wait a minute. Burnt offerings for the number of them all? What is a burnt offering? Is it, is it like a wood, little little thing of wood and he burns it on the fire? Or maybe some, you know, this grass. We need to get rid of this grass. There's too much grass around here. Let's burn up. It's an animal. Ten, there we go, ten animals for each of his sons and daughters sacrificed as a burnt offering, consumed totally. There are some sacrifices, and this, again, is out of order in terms of the chronology. The Levitical sacrifices come later, hundreds of years later. What's he doing now? Very similar to what Cain and Abel did, presenting offerings before the Lord. What Abraham did, what Isaac did, what Jacob did. I think Isaac did it. Jacob definitely did offering sacrifices to God, but something that is totally consumed, not something you're going to take a meal from, you know, take a little doggy bag home from the sacrifice with the Lord. There's some other ones that are mentioned in Leviticus that that do have that nature, uh, but not this one. You take an animal, a beloved animal, you burn it entirely. Watch it burn. You think, oh, how horrible. Well, yes, and yet... One person said it this way. Uh, one commentator says, They gather, Job and the patriarch, or Job the patriarch, the family head, offers a burnt offering for each of his sons and daughters. Later in the history of Israel, a burnt offering would be the most expensive form of sacrifice. Why? Because the whole animal, uh, whole sacrificial animal is consumed. It pictures the hot anger of God burning up the animal in the place of the worshiper, whose sins would have to made, have made them liable to be burned up in the presence of God. We can imagine Job doing this for them one at a time. This one's for you. And he lights the fire, the animal's consumed. And the son or daughter watches the Holocaust and thinks, this is what it would be if there had not been a sacrifice. And then the next one, this one's for you. And so on until all the children were covered by sacrifice. We see Job's very careful attention to sacrifice, to dealing with sin in his own children's lives. We realize that this example, this precedent of a sacrifice, something that will atone for his sins and the sins of his kids, and even the nature of it. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Even just a verbal sin is worthy of of punishment, burning, a burnt offering. And so he says, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it every time that my children have, have one of their parties because I want to be sure that they are in a right relationship with God. This anticipates so much of what Job meditates on in the course of this book, but also looks forward even more further to Christ, who is that perfect sacrifice. Job, by the way, look what he's doing. He's mediating on behalf of somebody else. Somebody else he loves, right? His sons and daughters. Christ mediates on our behalf. Not because we were in a right relationship with him. Not because we were so, you know, that's my boy over here, my daughter. We were enemies. We, if we were there in that first century time period, would have been standing with the Pharisees, said, we have no king but Caesar. Get rid of this guy. We don't want him around us. He's telling us things that he makes us feel bad about ourselves. Christ died for mockers, scoffers, disobedient traitors, treacherous trash like us. And yet we have a mediator. We have a sacrifice. We have one who is both mediator and sacrifice all together. He offered himself as the payment for our sins, just as Job did, for just even a verbal sin, but cursing God in their hearts. This phrase, we'll see it in the next scene here. Cursing God in their hearts to even blaspheme God, to say evil, wicked things about God. Job was concerned about that. Are we as concerned, even the the words that come out of our lips, concerned that they will defile us and make us uh, uh, separate us from God? Having this awareness, this even, people use the word scrupulous attention to detail that that, uh, Job had. Do we share that same thing? Again, realizing that sin is wickedness. Sin is treachery against the most holy God, a creator of everything. Our Heavenly Father, our Savior, Redeemer. And think, oh, a little sin won't hurt us. Yes, sin is worthy of death. Don't go into that thing. Turn away from evil. Do you fear the Lord? Then you should turn away from evil. This first scene, again, sets the stage for so much, everything that we'll see in the next the scene uh, in heaven and on earth and on the, all the conversations that are going on. These, these themes of righteousness, of integrity, of fearing the Lord, turning away from evil, cursing God in their hearts, having a, a mediator, having a sacrifice for sins all throughout Job. When I refer to this as the gospel of Job, I'm not really kidding. This is the gospel. This sets the, sets the stage, sets the whole narrative of the scriptures going forward into Revelation and that consummation of the ages. And we will see that as we go along. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful to you. Your word is sure. Your word is true. It is life-giving. It is that which we ought to pay attention. (coughs) We pray that you would be very evident in our lives. Please help us to uh, cling to your word, cling to you as a result of our uh, being together in your word this morning, but even in our own personal reading. Please help us to draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. Please help us not to be so proud in our own accomplishments or our own uh, piety or devotion to you that we would think, I, you know, I, I deserve all this. I, I, and you are wrong, God, if you take it away from me, from me. Please help us to rest in your sovereignty, your purpose, realizing that there is a reason we fear you, because you are the great, almighty, tremendous God in heaven, and nothing can compare to you. No, no one can compare to you. And we can't come become your counselors and say, well, God, you should have done this, or you, you should have asked me about this. You know everything. You know the end from the beginning. And we pray that we would rest as a wean child, even against his mother, trusting you wholly. We don't understand so many what hap- so much of what happens, Job. We can't even begin to understand what, what was going on here. And yet we realize you are in charge. You are the God in control over everything. 
And we rejoice with Job in this setting of the scene, in his testimony, his character, and his conduct. But even as we go forward, recognizing he must repent and draw near to you and let you be God. Again, we thank you for each one who's here. Please save and sanctify by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.